in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be continuing. Hello we and welcome to Harvest week. Church Podcast. And, uh, Harvest Church is based in sunny Durban, South so Africa. We are a family of believers go, who are passionate about Jesus. We really hope lockdown, this message uh, inspires you today. This is the first time in the service. Awesome. Good to see people back. Joy, wonderful to have you. Great to have Joy back in the room and those online. Great to have you connecting with us. So Lord, we just thank you as we come to your word. We always just love engaging with you once again, as we've done through this worship time, just reveal yourself to us afresh. Holy Spirit, won't you come and just impart truth and riches and just empower us to live lives that are display of the glory and the grace that we get to inherit, to live in and live out of. We just thank you for all you've done for us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So I trust that you are enjoying Romans chapter 8 and have taken some time to read through it on your own. We're going to be looking at at it through the weeks that go ahead. We've only got um, three more parts to it, but as with this one, they could extend. They're not going to be in a row, so we're going to have some different sermons fitting in between, but we will get through Romans chapter 8. My daughter had a graduation on Friday night. She had a matric dance yesterday evening, and uh, the matric... Sorry, the head girl of her grade spoke, and she said this line, which I loved. She said to all her fellow students and graduates, you didn't come this far to only come this far. I want to say that to you today. You didn't come this far to only come this far. And we've just started Romans, and uh, already there's been such richness in the promise that we looked at of no condemnation, but there's more there. So just get ready. We're going to dive in. They say that Romans chapter 8 is to the Bible what middle C is to the piano, what the steering wheel is to your car, and uh, I like to say it's what Jerusalem is to South Africans. I can say that because yesterday evening, as I'd finished prepping, getting ready to fall asleep at about midnight, I heard uh, numerous neighbors playing some music and having a great Saturday evening, and Jerusalem was the, the song of choice for all of them. But if there was a soundtrack... To Romans, the book of Romans, particularly Romans chapter 8. I know it wouldn't be Jerusalem, but I would think that as you're going through Romans and coming around the corner to chapter 8, it would be like that, that beat from Rocky. Do you know that scene? I can't hum it. I wish I could. Anyone can do the Rocky? I can't even try. I was thinking it in my head. I'm not going to get there. But there's this, this crescendo and there's this building up. And it's really this, that in Romans chapter 8, we see that God wants to, he desires to give us life in its fullness. We know that he loves us. We see that he doesn't condemn us. We see that he gives us promises, that he helps us to process through them so we can live in the fullness of the purpose he has for us. And through this chapter, we see that there are life-changing answers to four condemning statements that we often make about ourselves. And I'm sure that some of us have made as we come into this room or as we've turned on whatever device we're looking at. And we looked at these, and it's really this. Sometimes we feel these feelings, and we have to, to, to wrestle through it. But here's the, the answers that God gives. When we feel, and we can put it on the screen, thank you. When we feel I am no good, God says there's no condemnation, and so we can have liberty. When we feel I'm never going to change, nothing's shifting, there's no domination, so we can have victory. When we feel my life is falling apart, God says to us, there's no desperation, so we can have expectancy for his goodness. 
And when we feel that there's no future for us, when we might be in that place where, as Rich mentioned, that there's anxiety and how are we going to get ahead? God says there's no separation so that you can have security. There's liberty, victory, expectancy, there's security. Any other great words with a Y on, we'll probably find them in Romans chapter 8. So you can just fill them in for yourself. But it starts off, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, and there's no separation of them from Christ. That's the security that we have in Romans chapter 8. And today we're continuing to look at this feeling of, I'm no good. When there's this sense of guilt, when we feel condemned, where we feel bound, where we feel that we just cannot experience and live life to the full as we call to, as we see through Scripture. What do you do when you feel like that? Well, we said you don't ignore it. Don't wallow in it. But we take that feeling because it's real and we examine it in the light of God's promises to us. And so that's what we were doing as we read through Romans chapter 8, verse 1 to verse 4. If we can put that on the screen, we'll read through it together. Therefore, there is now in the immediate present and ongoingly, no, not even a little bit of condemnation verdict against us for those who are in Christ Jesus, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's a great uh, cry of freedom right there. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Now, that's good news. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What beautiful promise there is there. And we see that as we read through these verses, we're going to see God's promise, and we're going to see God's process. Last week, we only got to the promise. This week, we're going to go into the process. But I just want to remind us of the beauty of the promise that we have. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. And we said we've got to read it like our lives depend on it. It's something that we really need to get. It needs to grip us. We said that it does not mean that there will be no mistakes or no failures or no questions or no struggles, but it means that we struggle or we face the questions or the difficulties, whatever it might be, we struggle without condemnation. That's the promise that we have here because God treats us in a new way because what Jesus has done for us, in us, and we get to live out of that place. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, George, that's great, but what does it mean that God does not condemn me? I've often heard that he does. I've often heard I'm not good enough. I've often heard I've got to change my life. I've often heard I've got to make a difference. I've often heard I've got to live worthy. What does it mean when you tell me here, reading the promise of Scripture, that, does, that God doesn't condemn me? It means this, number one, God is not angry with you. I don't know how many preachers have shouted at you. I don't know how many voices have been screaming around you. I don't know how many times you've shouted at yourself with a hostile, aggressive tone. But I want to say this to you right here as you're watching. Once again, God is not angry with you. And the radical thought is this. When you know that, when you grip that, this is why we have to, our lives depend on knowing this. When we understand that, we no longer, when we're in a place of having committed a mistake or feeling like we've done something wrong, we no longer look for the lightning bolt, but we run to God's loving arms. That's the promise. That's the draw. That's 
the invitation. The second point is this. God does not punish me as a believer. When you are in Christ, and there's a great book on that that's called Unpunishable, but there's something about you that is unpunishable. He doesn't punish you. It says that if you read in Psalm 103, he has not punished us as we deserve, but rather he's given us mercy as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as east is from west, never meeting. There's compassion and mercy. There's grace that we find in him. But he does discipline us. As a father, the son, he delights him. So there's discipline. And discipline comes from the word of what it means to be a disciple, someone who's following along to come into the fullness of the one who's leading them. It's because he's not out to get us. He is out to grow us. And so we realize this. And when there's discipline, it's not ambiguous or confusing or hazy or I don't know what's going on and leaving me agitated and more frustrated. No, that's not how he disciplines. When the Lord disciplines you, it's direct and it's clear and you know why he's doing what he's doing. I shared in the first service, and uh, I am an animal lover, but I, I don't get this right with my dog, Minnie. Minnie is a jug, a cross between a Jack Russell and a pug, and, and anyway, <laughs> that's enough of a, there's some condemnation in that statement. No, there isn't. Um, but Minnie, when she loves to wee on my, one of my carpets in my favorite room, and um, I come home, and she's sitting somewhere smiling, and I walk into this room, and there's wee there, and, and I have to take her, and she doesn't know what's going on, and I have to take her to the wee, and I have to say to her, do you see the wee, smell the wee, now I'm going to put you on the grass, it's not always as gentle as that, I'm, I'm just so grateful that God doesn't treat me as I've treated Minnie, Minnie, I apologize, but there, there's something about knowing he's always clear, he's always direct, he always shows you why he's doing what he's doing, and it's to lead you into greater life. Number three. God does not reject me. God does not reject you. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to cast you out. He's never going to say you don't have a place at the table. No, the one who shouldered your sins will never turn a cold shoulder towards you. Maybe you're feeling that you're in that place here and you're feeling rejected. I want to say he shouldered your sins so that he can never turn a cold shoulder towards you. He always, open arm with open arms, take you, takes you back. And the fourth point is this. God never keeps his blessings from us. His whole purpose was to bless us in his coming and to lavish his grace, his goodness, his kindness upon us. There's never a moment where he thinks, I'm changing my mind. I shouldn't have come. You're not worthy. You're not good enough. I'm going to take it all back. There's never that moment. There's a moment where we take ourselves out of that flow of blessing or put other obstructions in the way, but his blessing is always flowing toward us out of his river of grace. And so let me ask you this question. As we finish with this promise, if God does not condemn you, why are you condemning yourself? Why are you letting others who have a less ultimate voice carry less authority, carry less purpose, desire, and plan for your life? Why are you allowing them to speak into who you are and where you're going? If God doesn't condemn you, stop condemning yourself. Stop living in the old nature of who you were and start living in the fullness of who you become, a new creation with an inheritance that gets to live in and out of the grace of God. You don't have to live up to it. It's been given freely to you. You get to live out of his grace. You get to live in a new way. So that's the promise. And if the promise is true, how does that change the way that you see yourself? How does that change the way that you're seeing your problems? How does that change the way that you're seeing the world? I read a quote on Facebook, and Facebook's been preaching to me. And it said this, there's grace 
that you, we can find grace in every mistake. That's where you go looking for it. That's where you encounter it because it's in that place that Jesus always pitches up amongst the hurt, the broken, the cast aside, those without hope. And he pitches up as who he is and he says there's grace, there's hope, there's life, there's purpose. I'm here, I'm pitching up in the midst of the mistake and the brokenness that you might find yourself in and I'm gonna shift this around because I can make beautiful things out of broken pieces. That's what Jesus does. He pitches up. And it's easy to see his promises out there, but how are we taking his promise and applying it in here? Not working it, connecting it to who we are and how we see our life. So we see God's promise. And now we're gonna look at God's process because there's a process by which he does this. There's a process by which we sing unfolding here where he deals with condemnation. So the promises, there isn't none, but what does that mean? Well, he says, I'm gonna show you how I've dealt with this thing. And there's this three-step process we get to see God doing, and particularly in Romans 6 verse, I mean 6 through to chapter 8. And it's simply this, it repeats, it repeats, it repeats. It's you can't, God can, and here's how. You can't, God can, here's how. Very different to what the world says. The world says if you want to see change, maybe you're feeling guilty, condemned, not good enough, not validated, Maybe in that place, if you want to see change, you've got to do something about it. That's what the world will tell us. Come on, get motivated, step up, lift up your chin, square your shoulders, get out there and make a difference. You can do it. Whatever generational category you might have come from, that, that is true of what's been told to us. If you like Sinatra, he would tell you, I did it my way. If you like uh, the rapper Eminem, he would say, you've got you to own it the moment. I can't even, I can't wrap that up, but I said something along those lines. Maybe you're more of a Miley Cyrus fan like, uh, no, I won't pick on any of my friends here. I nearly did. I nearly did. I won't do it. But um, she would say, what did she say? It's my life. I'm going to do what I want to. God just weighs up and he says, you can't. It's not a condemning statement. It's an empowering promise that he's going to make. He says, you can't, but I can. I'm willing. I'm able. I want to do this thing so that you can come into knowing that all things are possible in Christ, the one who strengthens us. And so he's saying, I can, here's how. And this is the way that it takes place as he deals with condemnation. We see that there are two laws at work. There are two laws that are, uh, are having their way and trying to work in our lives. And this is what, is what reveals how God deals with this no condemnation. And it's about one law that sets me free from another law. It's knowing that there was a law that I was under, but now I'm under a new law. The old law was sin and death. And it means that as I sinned, I, uh, I reaped death and destruction in my life. That is the rule. That is the law that this world was living under. That's why Jesus came. He came to shift that and God brought a new law. And in this, it means that the old law was overcome and overwhelmed by this new law that overtook every circumstance and situation. That's what Jesus did when he pitched up. And this new law is the law of the spirit of life. We read in verse three that... Uh, for the law was powerless to do some things and that it was weakened by the flesh. That's why Jesus came in the flesh. What the law couldn't do, he said, I'm gonna pitch up in the flesh and I'm gonna shift and I'm gonna change this. The preceding verse said this, um, but in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. 
So one law sets us free from another law. So it's true to say that one law can overwhelm and overcome another law. So we live under the law of grace, which means that we can live and overcome the law of sin that tries to hold us down, wrap us up, and incapacitate us. You see, there's a, in life, there is a law called the law of gravity. I went to um, a friend of mine, Jimmy Wright, the Sharks biokineticist, and he was telling me, George, you've got to start working your back. Forget the, the incredibly impressive chest and biceps and everything else. It's not exactly his words. Um, but he said, you've got to work your back because gravity over all the years will, will bow you low. A little bit like the, the law of sin and death. Um, gravity does this, but there's another law. There's another law, and it's the law of aerodynamics, and it can overcome, and it can overwhelm, and it can overflow beyond the law of gravity. There's this law that's at work, and it's like this. If I take my keys and I drop them, the law of gravity kicks in. But if I take these same keys, and hopefully I can catch them and not embarrass myself, or then he dropped them, and I catch them, there's the law of the spirit of life that isn't working me, that can lift them up, that can supersede, overwhelm, overflow, go beyond the restriction of the law of gravity and can have me living in a totally different way. You see, there's one law that can overcome another law. And that's what God says he has done through Jesus. By his spirit of life, he has overwhelmed the old law. And so we are no longer in a free fall spiritually. He's caught us and he's raised us up. We're no longer like Tom Cruise in the movie Jimmy Maguire singing to John Mayer, I am free, free falling. Yeah, that's a false freedom because you're still falling. You see, he catches us and we caught up in the wonder of his grace and freedom and he lifts us to a place and a position and a, and a way of living that we get to live no longer in trap by sin but as a showpiece and a display of his grace and his goodness. That's what he does when he lifts us up beyond that which would pull us down. But some of us are here and we're feeling condemned and weighted. And you're saying, George, I don't know what you're talking about, about living with that sort of lightness of being because I feel like I'm drowning and being pulled down. I'm caught in the muck and the mire. But the promise of God is that he'll raise us up and stand us upon the solid rock of who he is. That's the promise that we have. And so the beautiful thing here, I love in this, is that it, speak, it says the word spirit, the law of the spirit of life. I mean, this is beautiful. You've got to understand that in Romans, up to this moment, this is the second time that the Holy Spirit has been mentioned. Before this, we've been seeing about striving and trying to do it in our own strength and, and, and battling and I can and I can't and all these things. But something shifts in this chapter of Romans chapter 8, where then the Holy Spirit is from here mentioned 19 times in one chapter. Two times before, 19 times in this chapter. Why? Because if we're going to live in victory, if we're going to live in uh, liberty, if we're going to live with expectancy, if we're going to have the security, it's because of the Holy Spirit working in us that is overwhelming that which would seek to overwhelm us. The Holy Spirit working in us and through us, changing our life, bringing us to all that he has. And here's the thing, when the Holy Spirit enters the scene, everything changes. When the Holy Spirit pitches up in the midst of your hopelessness, everything changes. In the midst of your dysfunction, everything changes. In the midst of your broken relationship, everything changes. Because all of the possibilities of the living God 
are being expressed through the person and the power of the Holy Spirit being present in your moment. Forget what Eminem said about owning the moment. When the Holy Spirit pitches up, he owns that moment and outworks it for your behalf and mine. How does God do this? How does he replace one law with another? Five things, and we read it as we read. Sorry, if we can go back to verse one. And I'm going to read from verse three. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. And here's the process that outworks from the promise. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully made in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So here's the first way that God is processing and outworking this. Number one, he sent his son. He said, I'm not leaving you alone. You don't have to face this on your, on your own and, and try and exercise your own wisdom and capacity. You don't have to try and be good enough. You don't suddenly have to try and perfectly see your way through this I'm sending my son. And we know that John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I mean, that's beautiful. And we love John 3.16, but John 3.17 continues to say this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't do that. He sent him to save the world. His desire was to save the world through him. So number one, when you want to deal with condemnation, it's, that's when Jesus pitches up on the scene. He deals with condemnation. So he sent his son. Number two, he sent his son in the likeness of sinful man. That's what we've just read. It's not just that he sent Jesus into the world. It's that he came just like us in a body just like us, born into this world just like us. But he was the incarnation of both God and man at the same time. God did not send an ambassador, a messenger, an angel. He said, I'm sending Jesus and I'm going to reconcile the world to myself through him. That's what's taking place. He sent Jesus in the flesh. Why did he do this? The third point is this. He came in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. You see, you've got to deal with condemnation. I can't just tell you, well, it's not there. Take it away, don't worry about it. No, it's got to be dealt with. It's got to be dealt with. And so Jesus came to be a sin offering. In Hebrew culture, they knew what a sin offering was. It was when you would take something to God and say, you know, I'm sorry, and I, I, there's sin in my life, and I want to pay the penalty of that because someone's got to pay the penalty. There's a price to be paid. You know, in, US, in the U.S., there's been a fund called the, the, Con, the Conscious Fund that's been in place since 19, sorry, 1811 in the Treasury Department of the U.S., and it's when people pay their taxes and they do all of those things, but they still feel guilty because maybe they've been shirking or hiding some money, and so then they feel they've defrauded the government, so guilt gets their conscience, and so they then decide to send money in to this fund, the Conscious Fund. I think it would be uh, amazing to, oh, we've got the Solidarity Fund, so it's a, a little bit similar. But anyway, in the U.S. in 2013, a million dollars was sent to this fund of people's own free will, knowing that they've done taxes and that the government wasn't after them. They just thought, I'm feeling a little bit guilty. I better do something about it. So they paid the fund. In 2008, there was $3 million paid to this fund. People felt, you know what, that was the highest it's been. And some of these deposits are accompanied by a note of explanation. 
Someone once sent $1,300 and he wrote this. I send this to make restitution for tools, leave days, and other things I stole while I was in the Navy. Another writer confessed to taking two metal office dividers. And he said, I ask your forgiveness and I say I'm extremely sorry for this rotten act. May God and you forgive me. Another man wrote a check to the IRS for $100. And he said this, I've just not been able to sleep. So here is the $100 I owe you. And if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. Because there's the sense I've got to pay. You know, there's guilt. There is a price to be paid. I I looked last night, trying to search through this thing about paying, because we know in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, and in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, it says, you were bought with a price. He's repeating this. But then I thought, I want to see how many times this is mentioned. I found personally, skipping all the Old Testament uh, promises, I found 93 accounts in the New Testament where he directly or indirectly, the writer directly or indirectly referencing that Jesus paid the price, the ransom to reconcile, to redeem, to bring us into relationship, that he's taken it all upon ourselves and lavishly said, whatever the cost, whatever the cost, I'm going to pay it. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Man, that's a beautiful scripture. You see, Jesus did something for us that we couldn't do on our own. And it's so key to understand this as we're saying, how's condemnation dealt with? But what does that accomplish when we look that the son came that he came just like us to be a sin offering. Here is where it, it picks up. This is when that rocky music is just starting to thump in my ears. And was a rocky force, Stallone facing down Drago. So I'm getting a bit carried away. But Drago looks at Stallone and he's punching him and he goes back and he sits down on the stool and he turns to the guy who's mopping up the blood. And this, this Russian guy, Drago, says to him, he says, he's like a piece of iron. It's got nothing to do with my message. I just enjoyed sharing that with you. <laughs> Maybe I need to watch that. Why did I say that anyway? (laughs) Number four. It's a good scene. (laughs) Number four. He condemns sin and sinful man. This is what God was doing. And Jesus coming, just like us, to be a sin offering. The Lord put up its hand and said, I cannot do it because of the, the weakened flesh. I can't do it. So Jesus said, well, then I'll show up in the flesh. I'll sharpen the flesh. And I'm going to condense, condemn sin and sinful man. So why is there no condemnation for us? Can I ask you that again? Why is there no condemnation for us? Because sin has been condemned in us. There's no condemnation for us because sin has been condemned in us. That means when the enemy comes and says, you are this, you are this, you are this, you did this and all of that. You say, can say, that's not who I am. And you reminding me of what's operative that shouldn't be. Yes, I'm going to condemn that thing. You think you're condemning me? No, no. I'm going to take your advice. I'm going to condemn that thing so it dies so I can live in and out of the river of blessing and the flow of his grace even more. Every curse gets turned to blessing. Every attack becomes a weapon in our hands. So here's what the word condemn means. A condemned building means that it's been deemed useless, worthless, not fit for use. Actually, it's ready for destruction. 
So when the enemy comes, when whatever's riding in you right now, condemning you, it's saying you are worthless, you are useless, you have no purpose, you are fit for destruction. But God says no condemnation. No condemnation. If you are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. I'm actually going to condemn sin in you for trying to attach itself to you. That's what I'm going to do. Where the law was weak, I'm going to show myself strong. I'm going to pitch up out of passion and desire for you. You see, he condemns sin not just in the world, but personally in us. He came in the flesh. He subdued it and overcame it. He dominated it so that we never have to be dominated. Charles Spurgeon said this, if you are in Christ, it would be unjust for God to hold you responsible for the sin that Jesus has already paid for. It would be unjust to hold you responsible for the sin that Jesus has already paid the price for because there's such a thing as double jeopardy. Double jeopardy means um, it's a procedural defense that prevents an accused person from being tried again for the same or similar charges following a valid acquittal or conviction in the same jurisdiction. In the person of Christ, sin has been dealt with, he's been judged, and he's been acquitted, and we know that resurrection life has been released. If we are in Christ, it is unconstitutional or legal for the enemy or anyone else to come and try and condemn us. The price has been paid. The price has been paid. It's a, if I'm, we're heading into summer, if I'm using that aircon and I'm maxing it out, and Etiquini comes and sends a bill, and Leanne gets it before me, this would be a beautiful moment, and pays it before I could get to it. And then Ed Tequeni would write to me and say, no, but George, you used it, so you have to pay as well. That would be unjust. I would say, no, you have got no claim. You have got no legal standing. You see, many of us believe that it's fine that he paid the penalty for our past sin. But you know what? If I sin again, there was no condemnation for that past sin, but if I sin again, I need to be recondemned. Paul says no. This is, this is not a shifting statement. He said there's no condemnation. If you are in Christ, solid rock, there's no shifting ground in who he is. Nothing moves him. Nothing shakes him. Nothing's going to cause him to change his position. If you are aligned in him, there's no intimidation or manipulation that can move you. He says there's no condemnation. Let me ask you this simple question. When Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins had you committed yet? Were you shouted out at me? Not one. He paid for them all at advance. He atoned for them all in that one moment. Hey, the enemy wants to take you in a big lie. He wants to say you're not worthy. But basically what he's saying is the blood of Jesus wasn't enough. Don't fall for the lie. Here's the promise. Jesus' death wiped out not only the presence of existing condemnation. Jesus' death wiped out the possibility of future condemnation. He dealt with it once and for all. He dealt a death blow. It's not getting back up again. Literally means this. There's nothing you can do to make Jesus love you anymore. There's nothing that you've done that can make him love you any less. He loves you perfectly, right here in this moment. And sometimes we find ourselves in that place where we think that God will love me more if I become more like Jesus. 
the author and the teacher, Rankin Wilborn, said this, God doesn't love you to the degree that you are like Christ. Let me say this again. Hear me on this one. God doesn't love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. And that is always 100%. Let that sink in for a moment. Found another quote. I love quotes. Couldn't find the author, so I'm going to say this one's mine. It says, God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin, not the reward for us having liberated ourselves. Let me say that again. God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin. It's not the reward for us having liberated ourselves. It's by him accepting me that I'm empowered to live free of sin and condemnation. So what what does this mean and how does this outwork this point that he condemns sin and sinful man? This is what it means as we take it to its full completion. Can we go to the next point? He fulfilled the righteous law in us. He fully met the demands of the righteous law in us. That's what we read in verses one to four. And it means this, all the requirements of the law were fulfilled in us because Jesus gave his life for us. Everything was met. Not only did he pay for our sin, not only did he take the penalty for us, but here is the beauty. Not only has he condemned sin in us, but he's fully met all the righteous law in us. That means this, he's going to take his righteousness and he takes his goodness, he takes his kindness, his generosity, his excellent, the quality of what it means to be in and of him and he gives it to us freely because that's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. That means I live favored because of what he's done. He's not only paid a price, but he's given what I could not get. It's like the gift exchange. I don't know if you've done that at Christmas. TiVo sponsored Harvest, uh, wonderful gifts last year. It didn't help build our team spirit because we did that gift exchange where you can take someone else's present. And we were fighting. We weren't exchanging. We were stealing. No, we weren't. We were very kindly saying, Rich, I want what you took and I'm taking it. But there was this exchange and you want to get the best present. Wiseman did. It was awesome to see Wiseman cruise off. He had a very happy household and why. But here's the thing. We get the best present. Jesus says, what's worse? What, what you don't want? I'm going to take the best one. It is mine. But at the end of the exchange, when you don't deserve it, you've got no right to it, I'm going to say, here we go. I'm taking yours. And I've lived perfectly. All of heaven favors me celebrates me, loves me, deems me worthwhile and worthy. I'm going to give that to you. The spirit of life kicks into action. And indwelling sin is overcome through the power of the indwelling spirit. I'm not trying to make excuses for sin. I'm saying that we no longer have to live sin conscious. We can turn our awareness toward God and live God conscious, grace conscious, Holy Spirit empowered conscious, the, the, the power and effective working of the blood conscious, aware of who Jesus is. I'm saying we can live in a totally different way. And we are low level thinking if we're getting too caught up in sin. Forget about sin. Jesus paid the price for it so we could know what we have in him. There's no longer sin in him. There's the fullness of life. So turn your attention and your focus towards that. I'm a sinner saved by grace. 
which means now I get to live as a display of his glorious grace. That's who we are. That's who you are. That's what the lie and the accusation of the enemy would have you not believe. But God's voice rings true. It reverberates, shakes off the dust, illuminates once again who he's called you to be. Some of you here have forgotten who he's called you to be. I want to finish off by, I'm a good boarding school boy who used to sing hymns in, in chapel. There was one that was titled, His Be the Victor's Name by Whitlock Gandhi. And it says this, Long may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and a thousand more, but Jehovah knoweth none. The roar of heaven silences the shouts and shrieks of the enemy. Let's pray. Can I ask you to stand? What you might have walked in, some of us have walked in or watching and it feels like our soul has an anchor tied to us and we are being weighed down and we are drowning. And I believe that the Spirit of God just wants to move in our midst with the sharpness of the word that we have just heard, living and active, and just tie a cut every anchor off so that we might just find ourselves not only floating, not only buoyed up, but lifted out and placed, as I've said, upon the rock of the truth of what God says about who he is and about who we are in him. So I'm not going to pray a big prayer, but I'm just going to say to you, there is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. And right now I want to take a moment and just say to whatever sin, whatever lie, whatever accusation has been at work in your life, I want to say I condemn you right now through the authority of Jesus' word. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you come right now and set people free in you and in your life. I just declare that over you now in Jesus' name. And I thank you, Lord, that even as we spend time reading further in in this chapter, particularly we'll have walked in completeness through this, that there is no guilt that holds us in a place of condemnation because you have liberty in Christ. And who the Son sets free, well, you are free indeed.